Well, when you think of, you know, where America came from, America, particularly white America, came from Europe. And so if you don't understand some of the forces that drove white folks onto our soil, you know, how was it that we were trained to be ready to commit genocide before we ever got here? You know, what what happened for that? What happened within our heads and within our hearts and within our souls that prepared us to be able to enslave people from a different continent and to bring those slaves over to a continent that wasn't even ours? You know, what work is going on so that George Washington can have Mount Vernon? And to think of Mount Vernon as a place of liberty, even as almost all of Mount Vernon is in slavery. You know, what what is the context that creates a George Washington? Mm-hmm. What is the context that creates a Thomas Jefferson, for instance, you know, over at Monticello, who is both America's father of quote unquote equality, but also a leading white supremacist of his age. What wells are they drinking from that can really create this type of nation? James Madison at uh, Mount Pierre, you know, what What was it that was really forming these folks? And that is what the book studies. But at the beginning, what I was really trying to kind of dissect was just kind of the cultural common sense that I was born with, you know? Mm-hmm. How was it that we started to think about Christianity as soul salvation? How was it that we started to think about the nature of economics as only being math and inequality is not a problem? How did we get to that point? How did we get to a point where we started to believe that our government could not do any good for those who were oppressed? And so when I started thinking about what I thought I knew It was really that as well that led me to study Hobbes, Locke, and Adam Smith in depth in order to understand the worldview that had made so much sense to me when I was living in white America but could not explain what I was experiencing once I moved into the inner city. Here comes ad content. How are you, everybody? This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth. And um, yeah, it's been a crazy few last weeks, hasn't it? At least at recording this intro. It's the end of the week of Martin Luther King Day. We've inaugurated a new president here in the United States, and I know there's many of you that listen that don't live here. And yeah, it's been it's been something, hasn't it? It's been a whirlwind. A while back, one of the supporters of the show and a good friend of mine uh, referred me an author, speaker, pastor by the name of Joel Edward Goza, and he's written a book, and um, it came so highly recommended that I started watching some videos, reading a bit on it, and then realized that people like, you know, Ibrahim X. Kendi and people of that like stature had recommended the book, and um, so I read it. And I read it really slowly, and and you'll hear me reference that in the interview, because it's really hard to read. So it deals with the racist roots of our country. And I know that in saying that, half of you already are mad. And I get that. Honestly, I was a little mad. But I learned so much from this book. I gathered new context. And as I've talked about it with some friends that 
don't happen to be the same race as me, I've realized how true it is, and that needs to be reckoned with. And until, oh, I don't want to say this. And so I think that our hopes, all of our hopes and our desires for our faith and for our politics, our longing for justice and mercy and everything else that would make the world more beautiful and more whole. And I think that for that to happen, we have to learn to listen to the margins, to the oppressed, even when we've done the oppressing. And so I hope that you are challenged by this conversation, and honestly, you should just get the book as we talk about America's Unholy Ghosts with Joel Edward Goza. I was going to say doctor. <laughs> I won't do it. Joel Goza, welcome to the show, man. I'm excited you're here. Thank you as well to your publisher for sending me a copy of this book. You were recommended to me by a listener of the show who's become a good friend where they were doing something uh, with some of his people in his church and they saw some of your work and he's like, you have to read this book. And then as I started reading, I was like, okay, now I need to talk to... <laughs> there are some books that I read, I'm like, oh, that's a good book. There are other books where I'm like, Ugh. Like there was a page, I think it's like page 100. Where is it at? Yeah, Willie Lynch. I literally, that's where I, like, that's about when you emailed me a few weeks ago, where I was like, I'm sure. I'm not done, because I'm really mad, like, going through those three things of what they do. I was like, I can't. I just yeah. need to set this aside for a minute. But we'll get there. Yeah. It's Who, a triggering book. There's no doubt about that. But I'm thankful for the recommendation and to be with you. Should we have a trigger warning for people? Is that, should we do that? Oh, you know, it's... uh. Nah, no trigger warning. <laughs> well, wait, wait. If, if they can make it through the first few pages, they'll 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 be able to get. Yeah, yeah. Get. With a show of uh, with a podcast of my title, right, we can say whatever we want to say, right? Because what else are we going to say? So, who are you for people that are unfamiliar with you that don't want to do a Google search? Like, what are the things that you think matter as you're trying to kind of expand out? Where you're like, yeah, these are the things that make me me. Yeah, so uh, I am Sarah Goza's husband. Um, I am Roger and Naomi's father. Um, and I think, think obviously, you know, for anybody who has been blessed to have a family, you know, like that, that's always important. Um, but my family lit, you know, and we are all very, very white. So we're a very, very white family um, that has lived in Houston's Fifth Ward for about 15 years. I got there a little bit before Sarah got there. And then after Sarah got there, uh, the, ki the kids came. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do, you know, with my work is to kind of navigate my life between the community that I'm raised in and Houston's Fifth Ward community that's a very impoverished African-American community. And so, you know, a lot of our life is so formed by our loyalties and navigating the conflict between the loyalties to the very white conservative Southern Baptist family that I was raised in and my loyalties to the Fifth Ward community is the place where I operate. And I have to say that, you know, when you move into a community like this, your loyalties, at least for me, certainly shifted to the Fifth Ward community. Mm -hmm. And yet in the work that I do, what you try to do is take what you've learned and package it in such a way 
that those outside of the community might be able to hear what you've seen. Yeah. So you reference the fifth ward in your book quite a bit. And so I've, I've been through Houston. I try not to mm-hmm. go to Houston. And that's when you yeah, know you're from Texas, when you barely pronounce the H, it's it's Houston. What is the fifth ward? Like if you were to try to contextualize for people listening that are like, yeah, so yeah. that kind of correlates to this part yeah. of the city that I'm in. Like describe kind of the fifth ward, because I think that sets the context for a lot of yeah, what you write so in your book. Fifth ward is the community that arose after the Emancipation Proclamation. It was uh, some of the worst property in Houston, and that's where they decided to locate Houston's freed community. They wanted it to be close enough to downtown so that African-Americans could still serve the white community. And so we are in the shadow of skyscrapers, but we are the community that George Foreman was raised in. Barbara Jordan, who was the first woman uh, African-American speaker at the Democratic National Convention, came from came from us, the ghetto boys, the fifth ward boys, all of that uh, is Houston's fifth ward. And Houston's fifth ward really embodies the African community's struggle for justice and equality on American soils. And so there's a lot of beauty and deep richness, and there's a lot of brokenness because of the impact of racist public policies that Mm. continue to touch ground here. Um, And so, you know, in the school that is catty corner to my house is, is Phyllis Wheatley High School. That's the historic African-American high school. And you are much more likely to go to prison for a nonviolent offense from that school than you are to be able to graduate college. Hmm. Um, and yeah. so it was a community, you know, our average income was about 14000 a year for a family of four. Hmm. Um, so deeply, deeply impoverished. Yeah. Even when, you know, we would look at studies that would talk about high poverty schools, you know, the type of poverty we were dealing with was much different than the schools that we were reading about. Because hmm. uh, it, it would be considered not just poverty, but hyper poverty. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good context there. So before we get going, I asked this of everyone from Texas because it's, it's doctrinal for me. It, it, it matters as much as, you know, your, your view on, on transubstantiationism or, or, or the gospel. So in and out burger or, or Whataburger? I don't even think that's a question. Is it? Uh, it, I, you know, I have to ask because it, it matters. It's definitely Whataburger. Definitely Whataburger. That, that's a softball. So, that's, well, that's become one know. of the questions. I asked it one time. I think it was um, Sean Palmer, actually. He's one of the first people I spoke to on the show. Um, okay. out there at, I think it's Ecclesia Church or Ecclesia Church, I'm not sure how to say it, in, in Houston, actually. And I asked him that. And and it's ever since then, if I speak to someone from Texas, it it's yeah. just become a thing. I enjoy it. Um, well, you know, it's funny. So I went to a school called Wheaton College for mm-hmm. undergrad, and we had people talking about In-N-Out Burger. And I finally made it out to California. And I was like, man, the first thing we got to do is get it in an out Burger. And I took a bite and I was like, this is what I've been waiting for. You know? <laughs> it's <laughs> like an one okay of the most burger. disappointing bites of my life. <laughs> yeah. I am. Um, when I went out to Texas a few years ago to visit my family and um, I had one because I, there was an In-N-Out burger in Dallas. They, they'd sure. encroached and I was like, huh, well, let me have one. And I was like, yay. We Okay. There <laughs> we go. Uh, but to be clear, I don't usually get burgers at an out burger. I always get the chicken fingers with gravy because you dip those fingers in the gravy. At least that's that's yeah. the way I was raised. That's gospel. Well, so I mean, to be fair though, if In and Out knew how to cook hamburgers, then you could make other choices. But you know, when you're at In and Out Burger, <laughs> I think chicken tenders makes makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. So the book that you wrote and the the image on the cover that's the unite the right charlottesville rally right it is yeah Yeah, so i live right outside of charlottesville i actually work in charlottesville Um, my wife works for the university of virginia at charlottesville in the hospital there so um, when i saw that picture i was like that 
and the conversation around that has happened a lot in my community since that happened, as as you would expect. You know, I actually worked at a bank, not during the the rally, but um, that my mm-hmm. where I started my career. Uh, is the same road that Heather was murdered on. Like that's right. Yeah. So it's all it hit close to home. So like like I was slightly triggered from your book just getting it in the mail. You know. Yeah. So but you say you know so the book's title is America's Unholy Ghosts: The Racist Roots of Our Faith and Politics. And so all of those as I have I've taken this around and I've read it at my son's karate. I've read it at, at my lunch break. I've read it on the pew before church starts because I lead worship at the church. Like, and I get raised eyebrows. Like, what are you getting at? Why did you write this book? You know what I mean? Like, just the title alone gets people to give you the side eye. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when you were writing it, you know, people were asking you what you were writing on. And you wanted to talk about basically about anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm, I'm a big Chicago Bears fan, Duke basketball fan, and I'd much rather talk about those things than what I was writing about because because it is so triggering to people you know and the the wonderful thing about a book is if you want to keep it closed people can you know and the people that I was that I knew that I was writing for were simply for those who already knew that there was an issue and knew that there was a problem and really try trying to understand how it was that we got to where we are at today you know and I think one of the things that makes the book different than what it would have been if my life had gone in a different direction is when I wrote the book, I'm writing from the context of Houston's fifth ward, Mm -hmm. you know? And so what I'm wrestling with is how do I live in a city that is able to, to make so many billionaires and yet is unable to feed their own children, even of working parents, you know, how, how did we get to that point? How did we get to a point where we literally had the ability to defeat gravity and place a man on the moon And yet we couldn't educate our own children who are brilliant. You know, I mean, I used to have enough racist ideas that I thought the problem might be with the children. But as I learned and really got into the community, I had I had to start reading history and philosophy and basically everything that I read in such a way where I was really trying to make sense with the poverty that I was surrounded by, Um, which provides a very different perspective if I was writing from a different part of the city, writing from a different context, trying to answer different questions. First off, I wasn't familiar with Hobbes to begin with, sure. really ever. That wasn't in my McGraw-Hill, Texas book, yeah. uh, nor was yeah. it in the Liberty Mine University uh, that yeah. I studied either. When I went, to, So I went to Liberty, uh, which yeah. is how I ended up in Virginia. Uh, Adam yeah. Smith is a name that I'm familiar with, and then uh, it's John Locke, correct? So mm-hmm. I wasn't familiar with any of those. So you kind of overarchingly say, like, I forget what you say at the beginning of the book, and I'm going to badly paraphrase it. I could find it, and I'm sure I underlined it. Um, there are entire pages that I underlined. I'm sure it was brilliant, but you'll improve on it. So. <laughs> no, I doubt I doubt that I will. But effectively, you said, you know, we're going to talk about how we have to go back to the roots of both our country and of our of our faith. And, yeah, and then I you kind of the original crime scene. I yeah, think, yeah. We, I, I read that and thought, well, we're going to go back to, like, the founding fathers. And you're like, no, we have to go back beyond that, which is the pivot that I wasn't expecting. So what do those three people, John Locke, uh, Hobbes, and Adam Smith have to do with both our politics, the institutions, and specifically, like, what does that have to do with the church? Because you know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, when you think of, you know, where America came from, America, particularly white America, came from Europe. And so if you don't understand some of the forces that drove white folks onto our soil, you know, how was it that we were trained to be ready to commit genocide before we ever got here? You know, what what happened for that? What happened within our heads and within our hearts and within our souls 
that prepared us to be able to enslave people from a different continent and to bring those slaves over to a continent that wasn't even ours. You know, what work is going on so that George Washington can have Mount Vernon? And to think of Mount Vernon as a place of liberty, even as almost all of Mount Vernon is in slavery. You know, what what is the context that creates a George Washington? Mm-hmm. What is the context that creates a Thomas Jefferson, for instance, you know, over at Monticello, who is both America's father of quote unquote equality, but also a leading white supremacist of his age. What wells are they drinking from that can really create this type of nation? James Madison at uh, Mount Pierre. You know, what What was it that was really forming these folks? And that is what the book studies. But at the beginning, what I was really trying to kind of dissect was just kind of the cultural common sense that I was born with. You know, mm-hmm. how was it that we started to think about Christianity as soul salvation? How was it that we started to think about the nature of economics as only being math and inequality is not a problem? How did we get to that point? How did we get to a point where we started to believe that our government could not do any good for those who were oppressed? And so when I started thinking about what I thought I knew, it was really that as well that led me to study Hobbes, Locke, and Adam Smith in depth in order to understand the worldview that had made so much sense to me when I was living in white America but could not explain what I was experiencing once I moved into the inner city. So I don't think anyone is going to know those two first names. Adam Smith is something that he's talked about a lot, especially if you turn on any conversation sure. about the economics yeah. and whatnot for, you know, father of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. But sure. can you kind of zoom out a bit and and relatively briefly, like what yeah. does Hobbes contribute to this conversation? Because as the book unfolds, you kind of build on Hobbes to Locke or yeah. did I do it backwards? Yeah. And then Locke to Smith and how they kind of build upon each stuff all the way up to, um, like you talk about, where is it at? Um, if Nixon brought us to the age of law and order and illusionary inclusivity, Trump brought us back to the age of trouble and transparency. And that's, that's, that's at, the t- at the very beginning and you're talking about like race craft and slave masters myth. Like I want to break apart all of those, but what does, like who is Hobbes? Why does that matter? And how does that impact yeah. the church and the country that you and I are living in? And then kind of the same thing with yeah. Locke. And then, then capitalism, what does that have to do in the conversation mm-hmm. at all, especially with the church? Yeah. And so like, as I am, I mentioned, you know, like what, what, what I was looking at was what was the movement that formed America, mm-hmm. you know, and the movement that formed America, I would say was twofold. One was the religious wars. There came a time in our world where we couldn't go make it the way that we were just killing each other, you know, and so what ends up happening from the religious wars is that you have the the rise of a time known as the Enlightenment. And what the Enlightenment said was we cannot simply be religious zealots killing each other over minor differences and make it. We've got to really lean into our rational nature. And it's Thomas Hobbes that helps us begin this process of trying to use the power of our mind decoupled from religious dogmatic uh, expressions and ways of thinking to forge a new way forward. 
And that is that is the context that the Enlightenment comes across. And so often when we think of the Enlightenment, we think of the rise of reason, the rise of science, this, that, and the other. And yet coupled with that movement was also the work of racecraft, of dividing the world fundamentally differently based off of colors of skin, size of noses, textures of hair. And what ends up happening within this context with Thomas Hobbes is what he is able to try to construct, what he's trying to construct is a powerful government that can bring peace to the world. His image for this is the Leviathan, and he imagines a secular Leviathan that forces peace onto the world. And yet what I write about in the book is that it's a very particular form of peace that only serves very particular people. And so with the rise of reason, what ends up happening through the works of Thomas Hobbes is what does reason look like? Well, for Hobbes, it looked like the white male. Hmm. The rich white male, not just any male, but the rich white male became the embodiment of what reason looks like. So Thomas Hobbes is the father of English philosophy. He's often considered the father of political philosophy. And what I trace in the book was three fundamental political lies and three fundamental religious lies that he begins crafting. And then John Locke, who is the father of liberalism, probably the most influential philosopher on the American experiment very directly, and Adam Smith. And what the three lies were was that government is not about the common good. All government is about is about protecting property. That was the first lie. The second lie was that economics could be a moral free math. And so when I went to economics classes at Wheaton College, most of what I saw was grids and graphs. We talked a lot about gross domestic product and mm -hmm. talked very little about gross domestic poverty. And then the final lie that I trace out in the book is that justice is retributive rather than restorative. And so I detail out why it is that they wrote this way. You know, one of the things that becomes important in these stories and understanding the ideas that shaped us was the autobiographies behind them, right? And so it is not inconsequential that John Locke, the most influential philosopher on Thomas Jefferson, likely there's three people that really influenced Thomas Jefferson, but Locke is probably the most significant one. But it's not inconsequential that he invested in slave companies. You know, that was the worldview that he expounded. And what ends up happening is you have, you know, a vision of economics and politics in Christianity. They get tied at the hip to create the new world. Yeah, I highlighted that entire, the notes on Virginian. Is it all right if I read your own book to you? Yeah, you yeah. can read my book to Yeah, me. well, some people <laughs> don't want me to quote stuff. It's a little bit crazy because you're like, I should have said it better, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. So I highlighted that entire, so you put in here, and, and bear with me, this will be a little, little bit lengthy. Nowhere does Locke's racial analysis touch more ground effectively than in Thomas Jefferson's analysis of slavery in his notes on Virginia. Jefferson's work plagiarizes Locke's logic, which I did not know. Jefferson uniquely roots white supremacy in white beauty, arguing that black sexual desire is for white flesh. But then he turns to Lockean corner by arguing that the sexual desire of orangutans is for the black woman. Jefferson continues, I advance it therefore by suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, are inferior to whites in the endowments of both body and mind. Mm -hmm. And then you go on to say that John Adams then declares that thought worth mm -hmm. diamonds, mm -hmm. which is just 
infuriating. That's why it took me so darn long to read, to read this book. Um, yeah, it's not a quick read. No, well, it could be if you didn't want to engage in it. What is the slave master's myth? You mm-hmm. reference that often throughout the book. Right. What the slave master's myth is, is that we can pretend that people are just bodies, particularly people who are African-Americans. So one of the things that John Locke writes about is that he, he paints this picture of Africa and he creates this myth that there are monkeys having sex with African-American women. And he says, what are they, you know? we really don't know. And so the Enlightenment questions the very humanity of African-Americans. This is the type of thinking that forms Thomas Jefferson. And so what ends up happening is the very question of black equality haunts the American experiment from the very beginning. So what I say the slave master's myth is, is it's the ability to pretend that people from certain communities and from certain places are mere bodies that we can use for our profits, our pleasure, and our power. Mm. So it is the cornerstone of slavery, the ability to think this way. But even if you think about the way that we think about economics, right, is this becomes the paradigm through which we see people. We're no longer do we think about economics in a way that is designed to protect human dignity. We think of economics in a way that is designed to maximize profit for the fewest amount of people. Yeah. And so we create this, this ironic situation where we are the wealthiest nation in world history, and we are also the nation with the most poor people. Mm. And, it, and it is this type of schizophrenia and schizophrenic realities that has been part of America's life together from the very inception, and it was by design. It didn't happen by accident. Yeah. It didn't happen by accident. You know, so like one of the things I'll talk about in the book is I know a lot of people kind of get tangled up in the questions of whether or not America was a Christian country, you know, and you'll have people who believe that it would be a very good thing if we thought of America as a Christian country, and they'll argue in a way and they can have enough evidence to back that up. Or you'll have people who argue that we're not a Christian nation, that this is what we were founded on, da 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 and they can find enough evidence of that to back up their arguments. And so what I try to wrestle with the book was, if you want to consider America a Christian nation, you have to ask what type of Christianity was it? Mm. And what the type of Christianity that it was, was that it was a Christianity very, very comfortable with the institution of slavery. Yeah, you're going to find I'm often going to be struggling to figure out how to segue to my next point, because again, it's it's a hard conversation to have a conversation about, um, or a hard topic it, to have a conversation about. Yeah, I mean, because we're attacking things that our identity gets rooted in. Mm-hmm. You know, what I had to analyze was what my parents taught me to believe. Yeah, you know, same. And yeah, yeah, yeah. What my communities of faith taught me to believe. And once I was living in Fifth Ward, you had to realize that most of what you were trained to believe was fundamentally wrong. Yeah, it just didn't line up with reality. Uh, can I stick on John Locke for a minute? So there's a part in there. And, and I highlighted this as well. So you say, by the time Dred Scott stands before the United States Supreme Court in 1856, which I'll pause there, people can hit the pause button and research that. If that's not something that you're familiar with, you really should familiarize yourself with it. However, you then go on to say, the white wigs no longer sit atop the heads of those in power on America's Supreme Court. 
Such style was deemed too English. But the sick question that Locke wrote on men's minds roams within the heads of the justices. Do black lives meet the gold standard of full humanity and deserve basic human rights? In short, do black lives matter? Can you rip apart some of that? You referenced the gold standard in the, in the prior chapter about you know having to refine it, having to purify it, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. how do those two coincide? Because Dred Scott wasn't all that long ago in America's history, in our short, mm-hmm. short history. Um, and I honestly think it's something that is entirely swept under the rug. Sure, sure. Well, what, what ends up happening with the Dred Scott decision is that they basically say that Dred Scott has no rights that a white person has to respect. That this is, and Justice Taney is the one that writes the decision for Dred Scott. Um, And what they say is that the founders etched a stigma on African Americans to fundamentally separate them from white America. And the decision is absolutely correct as far as the interpretation of what our founders intended. And this obviously has present-day relevance when you hear of justices sitting on the Supreme Court who try to interpret our Constitution with the original author's intent in mind Mm. and not worry that the original authors were very sick when it comes to white supremacy and that that infected everything that they wrote. But basically what ends up happening when I I talk, talk about how John Locke questioned the humanity of people. Used to, even on this Zoom call, you and I could look at each other and say say that each other are humans. That I can recognize God's image in you, and you can recognize God's image in me. What John Locke said is, no, you can't, you can't recognize humanity. You can't recognize humanity. Because to recognize the essence of something, you have to really look into its essence. And his his comparable is gold not everything that glitters is gold Mm -hmm. you have to be careful not to confuse fool's gold with the real thing and so when we look at african americans are they really human we don't know that and we'd be fools to assume that and what i'll write about with the dred scott question is that it's this question that was written onto white hearts and minds that becomes part of the very marrow of the American experiment to question whether or not African Americans are fully human. Yeah. And you'll see that today. Well, why do inner city schools fail? Maybe those kids just aren't as smart. Why are African Americans more likely to go to prison? Maybe they're more criminal. Why are they more likely to be unemployed? Well, maybe they're just a little bit more lazy. And I could ask these questions until I lived inside of an African-American community. And once I lived inside of the African-American community, it was only then that I realized that those very questions are themselves the heartbeat of racism. Yeah. Because we don't have to say that they're dumber. We just have to question whether or not they're equal. Yeah. You know, Um, and that, you know, that question continues, continues to haunt us. Yeah. Yeah, and really the answers to those questions are uh, they're not more violent. Um, the the no. laws are inherently biased towards incarceration yeah. for people that aren't white. Uh, they're not yeah. less intelligent. They just have less funding for schools uh, because funding is based on property values yeah. in most states, and we redlined mm-hmm. as a country. Like, if There's an answer for every single one of those, though, albeit as a banker, when I tell people those answers, they're like, that's not true. I'm like, that is, that is literally yeah. true. I take a training every 60 days on redlining. 
because that is true. Like, right. I don't care whether or not you think it's yeah. true. It's yeah. tr- it's it's hundred percent true. Well, um, you know the you know the Supreme Court has a huge fingerprint on racial inequalities today. Mm. You know, huge. I mean, it it was no coincidence that President Trump's first nominee, Neil Gorsuch, his first decision leads to an African American man dying through capital punishment. You know, that is why he was put there to begin with. He wasn't put there to question racial justice. He was put there to reinforce the racial hierarchy. Tell me more about exactly this. What decision is this? Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not. So it it involves the death, ca- uh, a capital punishment case flowing out of Arkansas that was hugely problematic. So Arkansas tries to rush through, uh, I believe it was about nine cases of capital punishment before their lethal cocktail expires. That goes to the Supreme Court. Like you mean the actual they- drug expires or their ability to use it? Their, their, their drug expires, Okay, you know, and so it had been stopped by lower judges. It gets thrown out um, illegally uh, in many ways by higher judges in Arkansas. And so it ends up before the Supreme Court. Of course, the white defendants that were on death row don't go to the execution chamber. Um, you know, Arkansas has a pretty small African-American population. The vast majority of the people who were on capital punishment were African-Americans. The vast majority of people who were considered for execution who were white were acquitted. Uh, and so this case comes before the Supreme Court. And the conservatives judge did what the conservative judges have been doing for all of American history. And they mm. put the black man to death. Mm despite the radical racial inequalities. Mm. Um, And this, I mean, this is nothing new, you know? And so when white people had talked about, well, we got to vote for Trump because of the Supreme Court, what became apparent is they didn't understand American history. I mean, my community is terrified of Supreme Court justices. Yeah. You know, Ronald Reagan nominates Bork, who has a Ku Klux Klan background. You know, this is the type of folks that he wanted. Anthony Scalia, who he nominates, was a nightmare for African-American people. He Mm. was brilliant, but actually Anthony Scalia says that there is no place in our system for restorative justice. Mm. The problem isn't that he was reading the founders wrong. The problem is, is that he's comfortable with their racism. Yeah. That's the problem. Give me a minute. We'll be right back. pivot to justice because I feel like it pivots well to the role of the church in this. So most of what we've talked about is political for the last mm-hmm. 35 minutes or so. So mm-hmm. what does the church have to do with any of this? For those that are listening, they're like, yeah, my church isn't like that. Like, I know a black person. <laughs> like, I know a black person. We have one in our church. Like, right, right, right. What does the church have to do yeah. with both the inherent yeah. systemic racism in the churches and in the country and mm-hmm. some of the ramifications? Like, how does that all connect well, like if we t- took a step back, for instance, and think about some of the greatest failures that we've had, you know, so Al Mohler, for instance, in the 1990s, defends slavery. And he says that slaves were sinning when they ran away from their masters. What we've got to ask ourselves, I have no interest in demonizing Al Mohler. My question is more, what type of community 
does Al Mohler have to have in order to think along these ways? What type of communities do white evangelicals have to have in order to come out for Donald Trump 81% in the first election and 75% in the next election? To see a white supremacist and to think that he is our best hope for our nation. Mm -hmm. What type of communities have to make that? One of the travesties within the Enlightenment is that no longer are relationships central to the way that we think. We think of reason as this independent muscle that can operate without relationships. Mm. And what we have seen is the impact of the life of segregation that we live on our spiritual communities, on our moral communities, that without segregation, we could not think along the lines that we think. So what is obvious to an African-American is not obvious to a white person because they live in fundamentally different worlds. And yet what African-Americans have always had to understand is the interconnectivity of these worlds. So one of the things I'll say, whether I'm in a conservative or a liberal church, is that the one thing that the white church, whether conservative or whether liberal, always had in common is that they didn't need to know black people to know God. They didn't need to learn from black people in order to learn about God, that it became a self-contained system of white folks talking between themselves and saying that they understand a God whose name is Father without really knowing the diversity of his children mm. and those children's experiences. Mm. You know, why is it that when I'm in Houston and a kid in Fifth Ward dies, a black kid dies, not a Houstonian? It is because we've learned to think of black children as something other than our children. Mm. And I mean, this summer was just, it was just heartbreaking, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, just heartbreaking. And one of the things I had to say is that, you know, I, I don't know if I'm nonviolent. I don't know, but I do know this, that everything that could break me from nonviolence has already happened to the African-Americans who are in the street today. You jack with my kids, I don't know how long I can hold on to nonviolence. Yeah. You put my father in prison for nothing, I don't know how long I can. I'm hungry, I don't know how long. And so when, when we see these things, I don't know of a white person in this nation that can ever know whether or not they're nonviolent, because you only know it in the face of de devastation. Mm. You might have an ideology of nonviolence, but the communities that I talk about, you know, one of the things, the reason that my relationship with the evangelical church is difficult now, the white evangelical church, is that my commitment is to my African-American community, and our communities right now are at war. And if the question becomes, how do we end this war? I think that that's when the, when the work starts. I want to stay on on the church for a minute because you've got a chapter in here or a section in a chapter in here. It's, mm -hmm. I think it's in the John Locke chapter. Uh, talk about harmonizing racism with the Gospels. And so right before sure. that, here's what you say, and I'm going to jump back and forth in there. So you said, in time, Locke proves more persuasive than the prophetic tradition he replaced. White American Christians learn to read Scripture without learning to see the poor and persecuted through the eyes of Isaiah, Jesus, or the early church. 
It is a tragic irony that when it comes to deprioritizing the pursuit of justice for the poor and minorities, today's godfathers of conservative Christianity, Jerry Falwell Jr., James Dobson, Franklin Graham, find easier harmony with John Locke, the father of liberalism, than the prophets of Christ or the biblical text. And then you go on to say, instead of learning from King and the prophetic black church, white Christians began their own political operation that ran in the opposite direction and then wondered why black folks refused to jump on board. So what does today's modern evangelicalism have to do? Like, can you contrast that with the prophetic black church? Because I've read that and I kind of get where you're going with that, but I don't, yeah. I know the quotes that you hear from King, you know, that you'll get sure. every year in, in January. And then I know, yeah. you know, but I don't think most people do. And then also, are you using the word liberalism in the same way that say Fox News or NBC would? Or are you using it in a different way? It probably depends on the context mm-hmm. uh, with, with liberalism, and, and we can break that down a little bit, you know. But one of the things I'll write about John Locke is that it's through his genius that we believe that the heartbeat of Christianity is soul salvation. Mm. So one of the things that Locke wanted to do is he wanted to create a Christianity that harmonized with the aristocratic lifestyle. As long as I ignored the prophets, didn't talk about equality, didn't talk about just wages, didn't talk about centering my religion in the care of the poor and the widow, then I can protect my privilege and I can protect my aristocracy without the accountability of Jesus's words from Matthew 25. When you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. You know, there's other passages that you can go go back to, for instance, David's psalm to his son Solomon about what type of king he had to be, that he had to prioritize making sure that he protected those that the world would crucify without his care, you know. Mm. And so what Locke understood is that to get people to think that soul salvation is the heartbeat of Christianity, you had to convince them of that before they ever read Scripture. So before you ever read scripture, you had to know that the most important verse was John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Otherwise, you might come to a different conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you could come to a very different conclusion that the heartbeat of Christianity is not simply soul salvation. That the heartbeat of Christianity could be, well, maybe the Lord's prayer. That God's kingdom would literally be here on earth yeah. as it is in heaven. But the mindset of being able to reduce Christianity to my relationship with Jesus apart from my relationship to Black Life Matters was the work of John Locke, and it forms the evangelical church. And throughout American history, white Christians ignored black Christians. So when I talk about the prophetic black church, when you look at the roots of the prophetic black church, it comes about in the times of slavery. And what was the prophetic black church? It was this place where black people found a spiritual haven to survive. It's where they felt the love of Christ, where they felt the power of the Holy Spirit, and where they learned that God was on their side in this struggle, because just as he freed Israel from Egypt, he would free them from white America. Mm. So this becomes the context of the prophetic black church. And again, in the prophetic black church, America is Egypt. It is not Israel. So when slavery falls, the prophetic black church becomes this place of worship, but it also becomes this place where they care for the very physical needs of the freed people. It also becomes this place where political leadership arises, where they begin engaging democracy in a way that fights for those who have just been freed in order to prevent 
a second slavery from descending. When I would say prophetic black church, what I am talking about are the churches that have held on to this tradition of fighting for all of humanity as it matters now. Yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope that's helpful. I mean, we can yeah, it is. So my question is to go further with that then. So the voices of those like Jerry Jr., though recently not as much his because he's... yeah. I went to Liberty, so I can say what I want to say about him because I paid for that right. He's an he's an idiot that made me take the degree off the wall. So um, that's what, not to say that his father was better. At least his father was just more political about it. But those voices are prominent and displayed and given a microphone. And so, mm-hmm. what are some voices that people listening can tune into to hear some of that prophetic voice? Because you contrast prophetic imagination versus modern imagination, which modern imagination is all about value, worth, and scarcity, and get more, which is the American dream, versus the prophetic imagination is love people, especially the orphan and the widow and your neighbor, and maybe still love people. When, well, maybe, maybe if we can take one step back yeah. and think about what does it mean that Jerry Falwell Jr. is not an idiot? Well, I think that he is. I think his views well, are idiotic. I, I don't. I think he is probably... I think he... He has provided better leadership than most of the evangelical community. And what I mean by that specifically is you at least knew where he stood. Yeah, I just think where he I stands don't know is idiotic. If, well, but, but and, and what, what I mean by – one of the things I'll, that we need to understand is that we are community-formed people. Jerry Falwell Jr. didn't become Jerry Falwell Jr. overnight. Mm. You know, What would have happened if his father would have listened to King? If his father would have listened to King, Jerry Falwell Jr. would literally be impossible. Mm. If this is who he learned from. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm um, mm. And when we look at who we can learn from today, the voices have always been with us. You know, one of the things that we always have to recognize is that it is not that the church has ever lacked answers to our religious problems, our racial problems. It is that we have refused to listen to those who had the answers because they were black. Or we would only listen to black folks who told us exactly what we wanted to hear. Right. And those have always been around, you know, but if you look at the people working today, it is people like a William Barber, people like a Cornell West. When you go out to Louisville, Kevin Cosby that is there in Louisville, you know, I mean, you can go on and on and on. You know, when I was growing up, you know, I believed in this myth of a lack of black leadership. You know, maybe this is part of the problem. Mm. And yet some of the most powerful leadership in our nation came from the black community. Mm. It's just that we ignored them. One of the things that, you know, you, you had mentioned at MLK, part of the tragedy that we have had is that who formed our understanding of MLK? Well, it was Ronald Reagan. White people do not know MLK the way that black folks do know. They don't know him the way that the black church knows him. What they know him through was how Reagan misconstrued almost everything he had to say in order to harmonize him with a conservative project. MLK was talking about reparations. He was talking about equal pay for all. He was talking about the rejection of Vietnam, the rejection of violence. He said that America is addicted to materialism, to uh, (laughs) materialism as in stuff, militarism, Mm -hmm. blowing people up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even if you go back and start reading MLK, you know, this is a very different well than Dobson or Franklin Graham. I mean, even when you look at Franklin Graham, for instance, Billy Graham is not Franklin Graham. 
Jerry Falwell Sr. is not Jerry Falwell Jr. But when you look at a letter to Birmingham prison, King is condemning Graham Hmm. for his indifference. He is also calling out John F. Kennedy, who is the political liberal, because for for King, there was very little difference between Billy Graham and JFK. Hmm. It was the same type of politics that they were promoting. Where we're at today... Um, mm-hmm. And for context, because I'm not sure exactly when this will release, we're we're a week mm-hmm. after the election, like literally right. uh, a week and a day yeah. away from the election. And you talked about community. So tr- President Trump may be not the president anymore, but the community and that voice is going nowhere because historic turnout. And I'm mm-hmm. fully aware that not everyone that voted that way believes with all of the rhetoric but I'm also extremely aware that many do. I want to I want to lean into that prophetic because you referenced it at the beginning of the book where you're like the, the the minister at the church I think you were working at the time was like get up there it's time to go and you just weren't ready. So like what would be a prophetic word to the church listening for the coming few years because it's going to get very messy at least I think that mm-hmm. it's going to like what would be a word to those listening that are like need to do something I need to use a voice especially if I have it and everyone has it so everyone should use it. Like yeah what would you say to that for for possibly a better or an arc and a better trajectory i think it was drew hart that wrote in a book that i recently read that and maybe it wasn't him that if it takes 500 years of oppression to get into something it's going to take the same amount of years of of depression to get out of that same thing which is really flattening um for 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 my for my spirit but yeah yeah and i mean i think um you know, and, 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 you know, I don't, I don't, I, I, I know of Drew Hart. I'm not as intimate with his work, you know, but obviously what becomes clear is that slavery comes very quickly, you know, I mean, slavery, slavery becomes very quickly and radical change can happen in moments of crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that I would say a couple of things. I mean, I would say that for the future of both the Republican party and as far as this long-term viability and the evangelical church, if they had to choose between Biden or Trump, the best future is through Biden for them. Mm-hmm. You know, what became clear is that it's not going to be a liberal wave and Biden was never a liberal wave. Correct. You know? Yeah. Um, and so there is this space that is being created in our nation. If the church can take advantage of it to fundamentally, to fundamentally question some of the big assumptions that we have made, and once we get into that point of desperation where we're ready to question some of the big assumptions, we're ready to question the type of ways of thinking that has brought us to this moment, you can be in a place where I think significant work can happen. You know, the white preachers find themselves in a difficult place if they are just waking up to this now. You know, yeah. that's a very hard place to be in. And, you know, I don't know how to give them wisdom on how to navigate that. I just know that it is significant that they do. I know it's very significant that we do. If there's one reason that our nation has found ourselves in this crisis, it is because of white preachers, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that Ida B. Wells would write is that she would accuse white preachers throughout our nations of a thousand lynchings because they were either silent or they were willingly complicit. Mm-hmm. You know, and for, for Ida B. Wells, both of those are moral monsters. Yeah. And yet, if you wake up and your your paycheck is dependent upon a community that will reject what you have to say and call you out, you know, that's that's a that's a hard place to be. Yeah. You know. And yet I know if we don't have people standing up, 
now, even at the sake of their jobs and everything else, that more of the people from Fifth Ward will continue to live in poverty. More black children will die in the streets. And what became very clear is that the only way that Donald Trump has been free to lie and to hold on political power is that those who supported him wouldn't hold him accountable. And if we called politicians out from both parties for their lies, we'd be in much better place. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have to think of what it means that when Donald Trump lies about the violence of black folks to white people, which he does all the time, mm-hmm. he is doing that for a very political reason. And he is doing that because he is betting that we that white Christians will stay silent. Yeah. Even those who know that, that, that they will either believe him or stay silent. I think that the hope for the evangelical church is to be stronger than what Trump thought that they were. Mm. I want to ask one final question, and I also want mm-hmm. to set some context for the listener. So if your book was 100%, we've maybe talked about 11% of the book. So for those listening, <laughs> they're like, I don't really want to. I don't, I yeah. don't know that I want to read that. Like, we didn't talk about capitalism, scarcity of resources, property value yeah. shift. Like, it, there's so much we didn't talk about. So, again, it's a good book, um, and it's worth engaging with as long as it takes you to engage with. I think it's something I'm going to have to come actually come back to because there are parts that I, I stopped reading. I just went to the next chapter. Like, cause I can't, you know, just really angry. Yeah. Especially page 100 with, yeah. Yeah. yeah with, um, anyway. I'll have to look and see what page one. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Um, I'm not going to read it out loud because I'll get mad. So page 100 is in, in 1712 on Christmas Day, eight years after the passing of John oh, Locke. Willie Lynch, Willie Lynch yeah. came. Yeah. And then you go on through step one, step two, step three. And step three yeah. was repeat. And it was at this point that I was like, t- t- <sighs> no, yeah. no, just no, just, just no. Um, because yeah. when I, because growing up in Texas, I didn't live in proximity to anybody that didn't look like me. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then coming to Virginia, that is not the case. And now some of my best friends are not white. Some of my mm-hmm. best friends are not heterosexual. Some mm-hmm. of my best friends look nothing like me. And mm-hmm. the way that I saw the world is, it was just wrong. Like it was, yeah. if, if the world is this mosaic of glass, like I was looking through one thing and I had my head strapped to the wall and that was my only view of the world and the only color that I had. But if mm-hmm. I could figure out how to unstrap my head and move over one, oh look, it's a shade of teal. Or oh look, mm-hmm. it's a shade of magenta. Or you know what I mean? Like just the lens needs to shift. But the question I'd ask you is, and it's, it's a question I've asked everyone this year is who, what, how, what would you say God is? Or how would you try to give words to that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you know, if I had to break it down to one word, I would say heartbroken. You can say um, as many words and I'm as you like. I'm not talking about just in this moment. I'm mm-hmm. just talking about that's his nature. You mm-hmm. know, I, I see see a heartbroken God. You know, like so many of us, when I thought about God, I saw God through the mural on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You mm-hmm. know, this white person that had the power to control everything and created this world. And yet, when I got into Fifth Ward, what I realized is that the grandmothers that I worked with were probably the most accurate descriptions of what God is in scripture in this present world, this suffering love that refuses to give up, that fights for those that they love, and yet in ways that doesn't always just bring about what we desire, Mm. you know. And when I was surrounded within the maternal love of the African-American community, I think it was then that I had probably the clearest experience of what God's love might just be like, you know, Mm. a love that's not shown through 
the power to change everything in our life, but the refusal to leave us where we're at and to suffer with us as we get to where we can go. Yeah. Joel, where do you want people to go to engage with your work, maybe to hear other speakers say things that they should probably hear? Like, where do you want people to go? Well, my website is joeledwardgoza.com. Um, would love for you to get America's Unholy Ghost. You can get it on Amazon or, or order through through your bookstore, I imagine. Uh, it's not a quick read, but you're not going to have a lot of big words in it. Um, so it's it's readable. It's just, yeah. it's a it's, it, it was a book that's designed to take your time at. You know, I mean, really encourage people to check out the works uh, that William Barber is doing check out King, you know, in this moment, where do we go from here, from community or chaos? That is a wonderful, wonderful read. If you want to listen to podcasts, you know, listen to Otis Moss on being, you know, there's an old one with Vincent Harding, who was uh, in the civil rights era. And he's, and Vincent Harding is also a writer. One day at a time, one step at a time, you know, the, the call right now is to find the courage to question the big assumptions. Uh, and to, to aim for being the people uh, that we thought we were, but that we're not. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, I think that would be my encouragement. Yeah. Good, good. Thank you so much for coming on, Joel. I've appreciated the oh, time. Oh, man. Hey, yeah. honored to be with you, Seth. So I wanted to give a bit of hope. There is a section in the book that Joel has written that gave me something to look forward to. And I want to read this to you in closing. So he says, There is no failure in lives that align with truths yet to come into fruition. Yet there is light in those lives that signals the darkness that has not overcome our world. In lives of self-sacrifice, in the lives of struggling grandmothers and grandfathers, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, teachers, Preachers and lovers rays of redemption, resurrection, and reconciliation challenge the darkness of the night. In these lives, faith, hope, and love become real long before they become sight. And so week after week, gospel choirs take their stands, preachers take their pulpits, and congregates take their pews knowing that there is wisdom in lighting candles while whistling in the dark. And I want you to lean into that, to the wisdom of sitting there in the trenches knowing that that darkness is holy even if it's scary and painful i really hope that you have a blessed week we'll talk soon